we have been offering uh, lectures and workshops for about uh, two years now with the help of the grant uh, from the Institute for Collaborative uh, Research and Public Humanities. The three lectures that we have scheduled for this fall have received additional support, including this one, now from the Bouchon Center for International Security Studies and the following departments and programs, German, Spanish, History, English, Political Science, Women's Studies, and Comparative Studies. Many thanks uh, for your support. Talking about uh, interdepartmental endeavors, I'm very happy that uh, Joseph Steinmetz, Dean of Arts and Sciences, has agreed uh, to say a few words, <coughs> considering his uh, current task, namely to somehow transform our five colleges into a synergetic and cooperative enterprise. We could have not found uh, a more appropriate administrator to kick off our collaborative lecture series, nor could we have found a better scholar. As many of you know, Professor Steinmetz's own research, uh, for instance, in behavioral uh, neuroscience, that is, as far as I can imagine it, the integration of physiological and behavioral science from a humanistic perspective has been interdisciplinary in a very exemplary way, uh, certainly a methodological model for the humanities and the social sciences as well. Uh, please help me welcome Dean Scheinmetz. Many thanks and good afternoon. Um, first, on behalf of the College of Arts and Sciences, I'm pleased to welcome uh, Craig Calhoun to the university. We appreciate your sharing your time and expertise as we kick off this two-year lecture series titled The Public Sphere and Modern Social uh, Imaginaries. I'd also like to thank the co-sponsors once again, because this is truly an effort that involves many different units. The Humanities Institute, the Mershon Center, of course, along with many departments in arts and sciences, including English, Germanic languages and literatures, history, political science, Spanish and Portuguese, and women's studies, who are also uh, supporting today's event. But it's a real pleasure to welcome Craig uh, to campus. Um, as a scholar and also in his position as uh, president of the Social Science Research Council, uh, Craig has written, and I've uh, written, or, uh, read actually, many topics that are near and dear t to my heart as a scientist and also as an administrator. Um, these topics include, uh, first of all, the importance of innovation and research. Uh, second of all, interdisciplinary appro approaches to research and scholarship. And finally, and maybe uh, just as important, is how we disseminate that work, not only to the academy, to, to, but to the general pu public in general. And, and, and I think the latter two points are the ones that interest and intrigue me the most. Uh, without a doubt, I think it, it, this isn't under argument, the problem of society is, are increasingly complex and as such require really new and innovative approaches if we're to develop solutions to those problems. And it seems clear that these problems are best attacked by coordinated teams of researchers who can approach the issue from many directions and angles as teams of researchers that bring different points of view, different areas of expertise, and really, maybe most important, a real spirit of cooperation and collaboration. When I look back at my own uh, field of neuroscience, um, I think I was fortunate enough 
to be involved in the, I think, the migration of that field from really a disparate group of subfields into more comprehensive approach to the study of the topics of how the brain operates. And in my particular area, I was interested in the field of learning and memory. When I look back at my training, I was actually trained as an experimental psychologist with a few tricks I learned from a couple of biologists. But over the period of time, um, the, this um, area that I was particularly interested in learning and memory, I discovered could be really analyzed from many, many different levels. From a systems level, if you were interested in individual areas of the brain and how they interacted with each other, right down to the level of single receptors and single neurons and how they changed during, during learning and memory. So when I look at the application of that kind of field to a real problem in the world, such as Alzheimer's disease, which is a disease of learning and memory, I can see that the solution to that problem will come not from people who work at the molecular level, not from people that work at the systems level, but rather people that work at all of these levels, and probably more importantly, that are working together. So I think that was a field that matured that I really hope we see many, many fields in, our, in the academy uh, do the same thing. And there's a lot of room for that in the social and behavioral sciences. I really think that the quality of our institutions will be measured in the future by how effectively we promote collaboration across our traditional disciplines. And collaboration that involves, in our particular world of arts and sciences, the sciences, humanities, and social sciences. And I think here on campus, I really look at this, the Mershon Center and the Humanities Institute both are here at Ohio State are wonderful examples of how this new direction can, can be developed and how it can work. Indeed, I think we've embraced interdisciplinarity, interdisciplinarity as the cornerstone of the new College of Arts and Sciences that we're creating. We expect increasing number of cross-disciplinary and interdisciplinary relationships that are established within the college and probably just as important with our peers across the university and at other institutions. The second area that I know Craig has written on and promoted is the area that it's, we have to communicate our findings well beyond the world of academics. I couldn't agree more. It's very important that the teams of researchers, we assemble issues such as poverty, population, sustainability, healthcare, and hundreds of other topics, not only advance our knowledge from an academic perspective, but also effectively communicate that general that knowledge to the general public and to our decision makers. We need to be involved in public policy discussions and not be content with sitting on the sidelines after making our critical advancements in our understanding of what makes this world tick. So with that framework, I think we have the perfect person on campus here, and I'd like to thank Craig Calhoun for his efforts in advancing these important ideas and your own scholarship and, and your, uh, your certainly uh, fantastic career. I'd like to call on John Brooks from the Department of History to come to the podium, and John will do the official introduction of Dr. Uh, Calhoun. Again, thank you all for being here today. It's all yours. Okay. All right. Try to do this right. Okay. It is my great pleasure to introduce Craig Calhoun today, and um, uh, Craig has. Um, is really, as we just heard, one of the um, countries, perhaps the world's most eminent so social theorists. Um, he has graduate degrees in history, anthropology, and sociology from Columbia, Manchester, and Oxford. 
He has taught in many places, but most importantly at the University of North Carolina and New York University, um, where he is presently a university professor of social sciences with appointment in sociology, uh, media, and uh, culture and communications. And since 1999, he has been a president of the Social Science Research Council, where he has nurtured and extended the council's unique blend of academic scholarship and public international engagement. His work carries around the world and includes uh, participant observation in the 1998 uh, student Chinese uprisings and advising the Constitutional Convention in Eritrea. Uh, he has just been to Germany and he goes to Brazil next week. Uh, Craig has been a continuous influence in my own humble line of work. Uh, looking back at my 1992, 1982 dissertation, I find I cited one C.J. Calhoun uh, on a, the variable conceptualization of research on community, an article of 1980, I think. Um, uh, for two and a half decades, I have had a tattered copy of his first book, The Question of Class Struggle, The Social Foundations of Popular Radicalisms During the Industrial Revolution, Chicago, 1982. And reading it again many years later, I can see exactly how it influenced my thinking about insurgencies in late 18th century America. Uh, then when I turned to questions about the Habermasian public sphere, uh, in the late 80s I did this, and there he was again, a bunch of powerful essays and then a magisterial edited volume of essays, uh, Habermas and the Public Sphere, MIT 1993. Uh, a weighty tome, which I've, at least two classes, I have beaten through the entire thing. Um, okay, but by that point, he was well embarked in a major new project, a five-year exploration of the Chinese democracy movement uh, that he began while teaching in Beijing in 1989, and thus was an eyewitness to the events in Tiananmen Square um, and work that resulted in his 1994 book, Neither Gods Nor Emperors, Students and the Struggle for Democracy in China. Uh, moving from UNC Chapel Hill to NYU in 96 and taking the helm of the SSRC in 1999, Calhoun has focused much of his attention on the question of the future of nationalism in an increasingly globalized and strife-torn world, with particular concerns for questions running through the European Academy regarding the EU in a post-89 world. His most recent books, book, uh, Nations Matter, Culture, History, and the Cosmopolitan Dream, warns that national structures and national loyalties are not to be lightly and easily abandoned. But first, Callan's first adventure in an academic life was on the question of populism. He's returning to his intellectual roots in examination of working man's populism in early 19th century England in his forthcoming volume entitled Roots of Radicalism, Tradition, the Public Sphere, and Early 19th Century Social Movements. And if you visited the SSRC website, you might know that his most recent publication is a brief and somewhat sharp commentary uh, on right-wing populism in the great state of New York uh, in our current election season. Uh, <laughs> This topic tonight is in this general line, perhaps more broadly, his, and it is before you, and I don't have the right thing in my paper, so I'm going to introduce Craig Calhoun. Thank you very much. It's not as easy as it looks. There we go. Okay. Well, let me thank uh, both of my introducers. I've been, been thoroughly and well introduced. So thank you, Dean Steinmetz, and thank you to John Brooks for uh, 
two generous and flattering introductions. I will fail to live up to either of them. Um, that is, I, um, even in uh, topic, I will not uh, discuss, though I'm deeply interested in, the range of more or less programmatic issues about how social science and academic scholarship more generally is organized and relates to the world today, except in a very glancing way towards the end. Um, but I do want to echo Dean Steinitz's call for thinking about these issues and thinking about them in serious intellectual terms. That is, I think that we often notice these various issues and say, oh, yes, we should be communicating more to the public, or, oh, we should be concerned about the issues of funding and the transformation of universities. But it's um, actually relatively seldom that these are integrated into our scholarship and our serious intellectual analysis in reflexive ways. And I would hope they might be more often. Um, similarly, I am not going to um, give you a detailed, uh, abstractly theoretical excursus on the ideas of the public sphere and the social imaginary unless you all call for this right now. <laughs> in which case I'm prepared to, but I take that laughter not to be a call for such a discussion of, of Jürgen Habermas and Charles Taylor and Cornelius Castoriadis and a variety of other figures. I'm going to evoke, though, a discussion that is influenced by these and come a little bit back at the end to some of the theoretical issues about the public sphere as a general concept. But what I want to take up is indeed, um, and I was here goaded into this by uh, John Brooks, I want to take up something on which I'm not expert, the new populist movements of today, something that I watch and study uh, in a lay fashion, as I suspect many of you do, um, and something I've taken more interest in partly because I have studied populism in other contexts and other time periods, and uh, one of the things that I want to do is to situate a bit of this in connection uh, comparatively to other populist movements. But I also want to situate it in relationship to what might be thought of as an other to cosmopolitanism, to populism, that is cosmopolitanism, and to do so partly because theories of the public sphere and critical theory more generally have been among the very large parts of contemporary social science and scholarship, which have been suffused by a basically cosmopolitan self-understanding. Uh, this is not necessarily a bad thing, but it has often been a thing about which there was very little self-critical reflection and awareness, and something which has, I think, sometimes um, resulted in a self-congratulatory social science of people happy to be on the side of the cosmopolitans, assuming this to be the advance of progress and enlightenment, and in many ways um, thereby uh, out of touch with some of the social currents such as the new populism and what's going on there. And so that's actually what I want to explore and how this relates to the public sphere um, in this talk. So let me just begin in saying it's about the new populisms, but don't forget the older populisms. That is, there have been a lot of populist movements in the world. This is a recognizable social type and a recurrently, uh, one about which we have a recurrently skewed understanding, partly because we tend to approach each of them 
as though all we need to know to explain and understand it is contained in its historical and cultural context. So whether we are looking at the Narodniki of 19th century Russia, or at the US in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, or at Latin America um, in the early to mid 20th century, right? Um, I have looked, as John suggested in some detail, at the um, uh, late 18th and especially early 19th century in Britain, and to a lesser extent at France and the United States, and made an argument that movements which are often assimilated to an idea of the progressive rationality of class struggle to growing workers' consciousness, in fact, are significantly rooted in a populist uh, response to what's been going on in their context. So in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars and a major financial crisis in England with great anxiety about foreign influences, there was a large social movement which did help to give rise eventually to what later would be called the working class movement, but which in its context was very much organized as a defense of ordinary British people. If we were forced to analyze it today, I think we'd say it was on the left, in a sense. But um, in reality, and I'll come back to this, I think that it's in the nature of populist movements to not be very clearly on either the left or the right, and to challenge our very assumption that we can situate all political movements into a left-right framework, which is, I think, a misleading assumption, but very deeply constitutive of much understanding in modern politics. The notion that there is a sort of continuum which can be modeled on the French Revolutionary National Assembly and the factions there and where they sat, enabling us to look from a right of conservatives through a center of liberals to a left of radicals and to see this all as a distribution of, of much the same variables along a continuum which I think actually makes it very hard to understand a lot of these populist movements, if not all of them, and also movements which are more ambiguously named populism, like anarchism and syndicalism, um, as you know, late 19th century syndicalism on into early fascism appears and gets subsumed often into the story of fascism and forgotten as a story of a group of workers who are mobilized in France and in Italy and in Spain and other places around their own independent associations and not very clearly around a left-right sort of distinction, or again, anarchism as it appears in Spain and elsewhere. Um, and indeed, this is a, a long-standing sort of history here, which I think we miss. Now, um, I can just, I want to evoke only, not um, go in any detail through, um, some of these examples, there's this older history, it's familiar, right? It's one in Eva Perón, it's William Jennings Bryan in the United States, right? We have the, the Narodniki, the reference to Russia. The 1905 uh, revolution, which had there not been a 1917 revolution, would be remembered as an important failed revolution and not as a precursor, and which would then be analyzed not simply in terms of what it was a precursor to, but more of its own internal ideology. A major book by Trotsky, of all people, as a key historical sociologist. There's a persistent social science tendency to minimize and underestimate populism. It has a variety of sources, I think, one of which is that there's almost nobody in elite social science and history departments in the world standing up saying, I'm a populist. I'm going to do a populist analysis of these populist movements. There are Marxists, there are conservatives, and there are lots of liberals, right? And in many ways, these different 
orientations have been present in the writing of the history of these movements. And this has long been true. It was true if you think of the 19th century and the way in which we look at social movements and the history of political struggles in the 19th century, which will tend to give a very large place, say, to the successive revolutions in France and to a discussion of whether and how the working class movement was being built, but which will subsume at most into precursor status the very widespread struggles of small farmers, of artisans and outworkers and craft people dealing with industrialization, the um, United States Civil War on either side of that mobilization, the war between the states, will not appear as though it were a large-scale popular struggle, um, and it will appear in a different political register, right? But the Civil War was the lar by far the largest of these conflicts in Marx's lifetime. So we have a Marxist account of those things that feed into a Marxist story of the growth of class struggle and of labor movements, but we have an account then that sort of leaves out the kinds of mobilizations that were central there. And I think there are a variety of versions of this. It also is minimized, I think, by social science because it doesn't fit well to any of the primary models of political action over which people argue. And I'm giving just an extremely schematic tripartite account of these. We could go into lots more detail, but I think it remains true. Um, it's ambiguous as to whether it's interest-based, whether populists are, um, in fact, organized as another kind of interest group of one kind or another, whether it is a reflection of structural pressures, one sort of looks at this, and whether it's sort of cultural or expressive, right? And if anything, there is a tendency to emphasize the cultural and expressive by treating it as a kind of mistake, as a kind of false consciousness and error by people who ought to be properly recognizing their interests and instead are interested in something else. And in that, it shades over into a history of nationalism, which is often treated as a matter of error and false consciousness, rather than possibly actually something that people are interested in. The history of the study of religion, um, which is often treated in the same way, and a variety of other kinds of fields that don't fit with the everyday outlook and the way in which social science is organized to look at the world very much, and therefore get somewhat skewed and often dismissive treatments. Now, general characteristics of what I'm, and I think not totally um, uh, without commonality, calling populism, though there are debates over the term, include that it is very typically reactive. Right? It's a reaction to other movements. It's a kind of or mobilization for action that is reactive. Now, that doesn't mean that it just happens all the time, as in looking at the Tea Party today in the United States. Foundations are laid. There are donors. There's work that's done over a period of time. Um, almost no protest movement is ever instantaneous. I don't mean by reactive that it just happens. Right? But what I do mean is that it is largely defined as a reaction against other things that are happening. It takes much, populist movements take much of their being from what they're against or what they're defending against incursions in various ways and not by laying out programmatic arguments. Um, I could express that in relation to the way in which the newspapers and the occasional academic articles cover the contemporary populist movement, something I said in that little blog post that John referred to which is that it's sort of beside the point to keep trying to analyze what the Tea Party platform is and to look for the equivalent of um, a wonkish political analysis 
and uh, um, as though the Brookings Institute had some analog, uh, analog that was working for the Tea Party movement and presenting a series of detailed policy proposals, this or that issue. It's not that there aren't leaders and candidates who have some policy proposals, but that this isn't going to get at what's going on with the movement, um, which is not um, a debate about um, alternative specific fiscal proposals nearly as much as it is a complaint in outrage about what's happening in various areas. And I think that this sort of thing is common. I've already said these are movements that are not intrinsically left or right, but they're also very labile. They're also movements that, in a sense, at least in phases of their history, could go either way, can be organized and mobilized and funded in ways that steer them in one direction or another, and can be ignored or dismissed in ways that also steer them in other directions, as it were, inadvertently. I'll come back to that. They're movements that typically claim the voice of the people in a fairly undifferentiated way, and when challenged on being sectional, respond that they aren't. Right? When people challenge the Tea Party for being racist, they say, no, and here's evidence that we're not. Right? And in various ways, these are the, a strong piece is the claiming of the voice of the people, usually the ordinary people, and attempts to perform and represent that. So these are protest movements for which public gatherings work as a drama that is engaged in the sort of representation, the creation of a kind of identification between those who happen to be gathered, the 10,000, the 30,000, and the millions um, as it gets performed over and over. And there are movements that are very prone to demagoguery, partly because demagogues knit them together. They tend to not have strong or cohesive organizational structures. Um, and as a result of not having strong or cohesive organizational structures, they are dependent on communication, which is often organized by third parties, such as the media, and therefore by those people who get media coverage and media attention and who are able to reach them at a, um, with messages from outside, traveling around and speaking at conferences, the kind of headliners you can get to speak at a gathering on the mall, who may not be very similar to the people who are in the crowds, the kind of people who get interviewed. So there may be a sympathetic um, broadcast network like Fox, but there's also simply a tendency for various kinds of demagogues to play a key functional role, that is, to provide communication and to provide a kind of ideological cohesion to a movement which doesn't have organizational cohesion. So, for example, to take the Tea Party because it's relatively familiar, there is no Tea Party, right? There is no single. There are dozens of organizations which have sprung up. There's the Tea Party Express, right? There's the 912 movement. There are a whole series of different um, would-be organizational vehicles, each of which would like to be the organizational vehicle. They tend to ebb and flow in their relationships to each other. Right? And what commonality there is, is a commonality achieved in representation, both by those people who claim to speak for the movement and by the representation of the movements in the media. Populism is intertwined with nationalism, and I'm interested in this because my interest in nationalism, I'm actually not going to say very much about it today, but the representation of the people and the claim to the nation are closely intertwined. And one of the linkages is by the somewhat analogous difficulty that much of social science, say liberal political theory, has had with the idea of nation. Right? The idea of nation which has as part of its rhetorical operation the claim to a pre-political people. 
that is appropriate to a country, a polity. All right, so much of the way nationalism works as a formation, and the idea of nation works in related nation states, is the idea that there is a people there, somehow, that form the basis for the legitimate politics of that nation. Their interests should be served, they should be represented, however you want to think about it, right? works that way. And for a long time, social science, and not just liberal political theory, but sociology and other disciplines, tended to take nation states for granted as a kind of model, and then analyze them comparatively and do other sorts of things, but um, not analyze nationalism as this sort of discursive formation which supplied and emphasized this rhetoric of the people, which made it sort of always already available as a legitimate form of mobilizing, a kind of argument for legitimacy from below, which has been basic to democracy. And part of the point is that in much of our thinking about democracy, we want to distinguish it from nationalism as though nationalism is its other and its enemy, when in fact they're very complicit. And there has often been a deep connection in the constitution of the ability to say something like, we the people, right, as in the US Constitution, and a national self-understanding, a national frame of reference. I don't mean to say that everybody is engaged in excessive militaristic bad nationalism, but rather that we need to understand the problematic expressions, the expressions that we are going to say have deep problems because of their biases as being not wholly other to those we want to say are nice, but as much more connected, right? much more integrated with each other in this sense. It's also another theme that I want to bring up of the ways in which the idea of nation and the idea of people get constructed in various ways as a sort of categorical identity, an identity which is felt to directly reach each person who's part of it, not just be mediated through kinship and other local memberships, but be basic to who the person is, to be an American, to be French, or whatever it might be, and that makes this powerful in a distinctive way, but a, a very new and modern way in this. So I've already kind of hinted that populism is a product, politics of protest in this, and I'm going to come back to this because it is linked to people's interests in some very significant ways. Just to, to evoke this in a casual reference, it's not like there aren't a whole lot of things to be angry about in the United States today. And when you read the media critiques of populist anger, it's sort of equated with being a fool. Ah, these angry populists, they're not doing rational political analysis, as though the implication would be sound to say, Oh, well, rational political analysis would tell you government's been doing its job very well, the economic order is working just fine, we have a high level of security, and nobody's lost their job or their home. Right? That's not rational political analysis. That's as much a fantasy as anyone in an angry populist group is carrying. Right? So there are real issues. Right? They may be channeled into fantastic and unhelpful politics. Right? but it's not like there aren't real issues, and there are recurrently ties um, to issues of economic hardship, insecurity, and accentuated inequality, which are not the same thing, right? To some combination of these three sorts of variables. If we were looking at, at the progressive era, if we looked at Gilded Age populism, we would see similarities in this sort of thing. Um, nonetheless, a common feature of these populist movements is that though they have strong economic motivations, they focus much of their attack, much of their rhetorical energy, on state elites. That is, they tend to have economic grievances and then complain to 
or about the government. Um, and you can see this today. There has been no sustained mobilization in this current financial crisis against any of the private organizations that are central to creating the economic crisis. Where is the investment bank movement in the United States challenging the people who made hundreds of millions of dollars right, from bundling mortgages together, securitizing them, selling them, and doing so in ways that amount to predatory lending, depriving people of their houses, and creating stock market crises. There is no popular mobilization that directly focuses on the economy. That doesn't mean economic issues are not a factor in producing a mobilization, which nonetheless focuses on the state and on that which we, the people, and apparently have in common as a grievance about the state. The sense of injustice, of corruption, of betrayal works very large in this. And it's very common to lots of these movements to have a hostility to immigrants or perceived foreign influences as an issue. And this is not just in the current era, but one that runs through this. And we might suggest that it runs through it precisely because some version of globalization and international influences and competition over jobs and security has, in fact, run through the modern era. That this is not merely an expression of racism, even if some of the movements are racist. And it is not merely um, an expression of, of ethnocentrism and xenophobia, though that is common too, but it is also a reflection of the extent to which the modern era is set up in part in a way that it has at, as one of its bases a sort of contradictory system of geographically dispersed unequal accumulation so that people are constantly presented with real facts in their lives, which they may understand in ideologically different ways, but that have to do with the extent to which workers somewhere else may work cheaper, for example, and um, as occurred. And this could be mine workers in the song Joe Hill, the work, right? The workers in Latin America will work for fantastically smaller amounts, and the mine bosses therefore feel an impunity in closing the mines, so much earlier in the labor movement. But it's built in to the modern era, um, though it tends to be understood as idiosyncratic each time, each time there's an emotional, angry, outraged, indignant sort of movement. Last, you'll be glad not just a long list of these sort of general characterizations. This is a global phenomenon. It is particularly a global phenomenon now, right? That is, it's happening in lots of places, and it's related to global upheavals and patterns that are going on in the world. I'm not going to go into, I'd really like to go into a discussion of the financial crisis in this, and financialization itself, the way in which the 35 years of neoliberal financial globalization have created the stage on which this populism becomes a plausible response in lots of settings because I think that this is true, the exacerbated inequalities, the um, prominence of a new set of elites who felt they were the possessors of new and distinct knowledge that made this time completely different from all other times, that made the instruments that they dealt in perfect instruments, and that allowed them to ignore discontent from below, right? Simple example of this, you know, since the um, financial and economic crisis of the beginning of the current decade, 2001-2002, there was very little recovery in employment in the United States. The stock market right, recovered massively in a kind of finance-driven bubble. And elites basically said that's the way it's supposed to work, right? And ignored the people who were losing 
jobs and saying out. Or again, the United States has had a very persistently high unemployment rate, not just since 2008, but running into that, right? The long-term deindustrialization. I can mention Cleveland here, right? Um, the, these phenomena are linked, right? This is a substantial phenomenon. So when there is an anxiety about dislocation, about the geographic inequalities that go with the economic inequalities of capitalism. There are very close to hand sorts of examples of some of what's going on in all of this. And then this interrelates with migration or with jobs ostensibly moved to Malaysia or whatever other way you want to think about it. Um, now, the movement, I would say, hasten to suggest, is not, that is not organized in the United States is also not organized internationally. It is not as though the Tea Party is part of some vast global conspiracy linking it to all other populist movements in the world. The point isn't organization, but the point is a certain commonality, and these movements watch each other to a certain extent. I'll give you a quick visual example of that. But these are global, in a sense, which is mediated, literally. The media are presenting them to each other, allowing an, an observation of this sort of thing around the world. And there are a bunch of these movements. So someone like Alexander Dugin, probably the one person here who would be least likely to get um, recognized if we were doing a poll of the audience on who these people are, head of the Eurasia movement in Russia, is a, in the upper left-hand corner, leading Russian populist, influence on Vladimir Putin, who has recently succeeded in his demand that he be appointed as professor of sociology at Moscow State University. Um, though he is not credible as a sociologist, he is a social movement leader who has led an ethnicist Russian movement, though called the Eurasian movement, which embraces the former Soviet empire, though embraces the hierarchical relationships which allow it to cohere, he says, that is, white Russians at the top and so forth down. Um, and who presents an argument for the importance of a Russian people's movement in the context of financialization, the uh, Big Bang brought by Jeffrey Sachs and a variety of other Western advisors to Russia, and the massive and calamitous collapse in living standards of many ordinary Russians in response to this, the collapse of the Soviet Union, understood as being literally a loss of the Cold War, that is, the West using some of that same financial might to defeat the Soviet Union, um, but saying that there was um, whatever was imperfect in it still a better system for the strength of the Russian people, um, an account of the importance of the Russian nation standing tall in the world, and the need to pay attention to the um, circumstances of ordinary people. Now, Dugan is on the edge of being a proto-fascist, though he started out a leftist. So as I say, these are very hard to classify sort of categories. But Chavez and that man over his shoulder, um, and um, um, Lula and Kirchner and Gert um, Builders from the Netherlands, right? These are familiar faces now in the news. We have some general idea that there are these populist movements. There is much in the movement in the Netherlands with its combination of attacks on immigrants and attacks on the way in which um, the state has managed fiscal matters that is in common with movements, say, in the US, something that is different, which is the extent to which European integration exacerbates the anxieties around national belonging as they appear in a country like the Netherlands. Right? There are differences in each of these regional contexts with something common. And Chavez and Castro remind us this isn't necessarily right wing. This is something that um, involves movements that can appear in certain ways on the left, though with a variety of ambiguities about this. I said I mentioned they're watching each other, right? This is not a labor supporter, by the way. Labor is the audacity of hype. And 
Um, the uh, reference to the Obama slogan is intentional, and this is a call to vote for the British National Party. Right? And the British National Party, um, uh, you should remember in all of this, actually got a bunch of votes and successfully elected two members to the European Parliament. And this is a far-right, nearly Nazi um, group in Britain, though at pains to tell you that it's not nearly Nazi. It's people like you voting for the BNP. Look at this happy family of British National Party supporters who are saying no to crime, no to immigration, no to EU rule, no to high taxes, and yes to bringing troops home from Iraq. Right? So there's a significant mobilization. We know this man, Jean-Marie Le Pen, right, and his attempt to um, lead a variety of waves of electoral success, getting farthest um, in 2000 with his uh, managing to get into a runoff, horrifying French people. He was such an extremist, so much on the margins, and in the last three years, leading a campaign to bring himself back from the margins. This is Le Pen's ad more recently, right? Notice we have a, a slightly ethnically indeterminate, probably um, Middle Eastern, but uh, certainly multiracial or non-French, non-French white woman um, who is advocating, is telling us that nationality, assimilation, social mobility, secularism, right? They are all broken, right? That the, we have to just get out of this whole mindset of the things that are considered to be legitimate right or left, droite, gauche, right, all broken, right, down with right or left, up with Le Pen for president, 2007. So an evocation here of this populism that's in Le Pen that he's going to reach out and try to defend himself. I don't think he thinks that he's going to get Arab or black votes, right, in any considerable numbers, but I think he's going to successfully defend himself against the notion that he doesn't represent the people Right, by demonstrating that he's not racist in this sense, and that these things are broken for all French people. And of course, we have versions of this at home. Um, the versions are many, as I suggested before. I won't belabor the point. We have our representations of, oh, look, the Tea Party is multicultural, and it's all sweet little girls, and other sorts of accounts of this that play off of it. But it's not like there isn't any truth to the allegation of racism, though leaders are at uh, pains to try to minimize the representation. So you see a battle over representation in some ways. And one of the things to recognize is how much all of these signs are addressed to other members of the movement through the media as well as outside. They're not just external representations of an organized interest group movement in various ways. So, Populism, I said already at the beginning, is largely constructed as a series of rejections and defenses, right? Things we have to defend ourselves from and keep out in various ways, things that are bad and we want to reject and sort of create problems. Now note that this outlaw homosexual marriage sign is from the National Front in Britain, right? It's not unique to the United States, and in fact the sexual politics of, and the gender politics are a big issue in the populist movements all around the world today. You may have read of the um, attack on a uh, gay rights parade in Serbia recently, and there are just any number of these sorts of things. An interesting feature of the politics of the far right today is the extent to which sexual issues, se issues of sexual morality and identity, abortion, um, homosexual marriage, 
of the sex education of kids in schools, that these sorts of issues are basic issues that move a very significant segment of people. They're not exactly economic interests, right? They're not obvious structural reflections of a position in the society's structure in a certain sense, but they are issues that are evocative in a kind of moral protest, or again, English as America's official language and so forth and so on. Keep out the aliens. Um, this man is carrying a sign that um, has, it tells you how to pronounce revolution. This is sort of, you know, in case you didn't know. The, right, so the new populism generally is, I think, shaped by financial crisis, but not responding directly to it. And is a moral complaint that is mobilizing a variety of responses um, um, among people who feel that they have, in various ways, played by the rules of an old social contract, and somebody is abrogating that contract without their agreement. And the world is turning different from what they thought they were entitled to expect. They weren't, if they were white men in the United States, they were entitled to expect that white men would continue to enjoy the same privilege in relation to women or people of color that they've enjoyed before, that the world would look sort of the same. They were entitled to expect some reward for being a little bit liberal and accepting, rather than an expectation that they should be a lot liberal and accepting. Right? That there, and there's an issue of morality in this that extends into a variety of arenas, into something like the healthcare debates and the extent to which people feel that what's at issue is that people who have not done their moral duty will nonetheless reap benefits for which others are asked to sacrifice. Right? That the undeserving poor, to use a 19th century term for it, will somehow benefit from the taxes paid by the deserving not very well off in all of this. So there's a moral argument to this, um, a kind of moral economy in the way that E.P. Thompson used it in the 19th century, picking it up from an older um, British discourse, um, but one which has tended to seem to historians like me, who um, worked with Thompson's work in that evocation, always to refer to a progressive thing. Oh, the moral economy of the people against the bosses, this must be a good thing. Right? But this is, as I've suggested, a labile thing, a thing that is not intrinsically left or right, good or bad, but a sentiment of response that can be organized in a variety of ways. This happens out over and over again. I just flew here from Germany, right, where the topic of how hardworking Germans are being asked to bail out profligate Greeks is a very big populist concern and producing significant effects on people who are not particularly populist, Angela Merkel, a more conventional conservative politician, but who feels she has to now cater to and extend um, the discussion relationship to that. Britain's complaint about the cost of immigrants and so forth. Russians feel they've been cheated, not just had bad luck, but cheated in the transition. And there's an issue of anxiety that runs through all of this, not just and this is why it's hard to do just a structural explanation, right? Not only not just an interest group, but not just structural. It's not just whether people are making more money or less, or whether people have actually lost their houses, right? I'm not sure that there's any evidence that members of the Tea Party mobilizations are more likely to have actually had a foreclosure than anyone else. But there is a widespread issue of anxiety that is not limited to people who are mobilized in these populist movements, but to which they respond, which is part of the appeal. And it occurs in several different forms. The very immediate anxieties people have about the economy, what I symbolize by the sort of white man's panic image, but that is the anxieties of people for whom social change is changing what they feel they should be able to expect in the world, in their families, in 
a realm of relationships in a variety of ways, often a loss of privilege, um, but not always. And broader stresses of a world that simply doesn't look familiar in various ways, which is part of the issues of immigration as well as of other things. And this comes out often as a sense of a loss of the nation, right? a sort of loss of the idea of being able to rely on one's situation in the nation to locate oneself effectively in the world. Whether you're Dutch or Russian or American, right, there is a work done by the notion of nation that is missed by social scientists who consistently want to debunk it um, around the idea of a more or less stable location in a world, a world that becomes all the more threatening and has all sorts of global issues going on and in which um, the nation looks at risk and indeed, it turns out that many elites want to tell you the nation ought to be at risk. Nation was a bad idea. The nation state ought to vanish with globalization after all. And then there's a sense of loss of the future, right? a sense that the future itself no longer appears as something which one can control by meaningful steps of action. Will savings do it? Well, one of the effects of the financial crisis was a massive reduction in the savings of ordinary people, but not just the financial crisis. The loose money response, the response of bringing interest rates to zero in order to try to reflate the economy is going to do very little for the savings of ordinary people, who fall to zero or inflated away, right? but is going to do something for other actors in the economy in various ways. The future seems just in that literal economic sense distant, but in a whole variety of other ways. The future, I think, comes to seem somewhat disconnected. And I'll come back to that a little bit more. Something hard to grasp, something in which you may have this ideal or that ideal, but how to connect that to plausible next steps of action seems tricky. Right? We could think of, say, graduate students right? working hard on their dissertations, publishing, following all the rules. And then we could think of the job market for those graduate students and how difficult it is for their plausible actions to control what will happen. Now, yes, if they publish more articles in the leading journals of their field, they will have a better chance in the job market, but actually, that will control a relatively small fraction of the chance in the job market. The bigger part of it is being controlled by things like the bizarre way California funds public institutions, including universities, or the way in which universities decide to manage their financial crises and how they cut back and organize their things, right? A variety of things out of control will transform a relationship to the future for a variety of people. And so a future that is deferred is, I think, um, a big issue, and an issue for the left-wing populisms. I mean, come back to it as well, right? So Congress is enslaving our children with debt. Our ch children won't live as well as us. Well, my children probably won't live as well either. They aren't in the Tea Party movement. I'm not in the Tea Party movement. But they probably right, will not enjoy the same material circumstances that I, as one of the last beneficiaries of the long post-war boom, will enjoy in many ways. There are a variety of real issues in this. Um, the, there are a variety of national variations on this theme. European integration is loved by almost all elites in almost every European country. Right? They were astonished. Right? My only successful venture in predictive social science was when I happened to arrive in Spain on the day of the referendum on Europe's basic law and got interviewed by a Spanish newspaper and set up all these people. And they went, what's my view well, as an American and all of this? And I said, well, I think the referendum is going to fail. And they said, you're insane, basically. You don't know what you're talking about. You Americans, you social scientists. And, right? and I had very simplistic reasons. I hadn't done major surveys of the European population. I had reasons like, as a document, 
it was a document that only lawyers and political elites could love. Right? It was incredibly long. Think of the US Constitution, at least when I was young, all of the school children memorizing it in order to perform in various kinds of competitions and so forth. And think of the scale of the European basic law, what it regulated, the extent to which it was very clearly going to make jobs for a lot of lawyers and not very clearly going to do much for other people and indeed was going to strengthen a European power, which many people felt was less democratic, and I think correctly felt was less democratic than the politics in their own country, um, and was going to strengthen a European economy in which they weren't faring well. And I actually think they were often mistaken that they actually would have benefited from a stronger European economy on that note, but never mind, they thought um, otherwise. Right? So European integration has actually been a significant source of anxiety. It shows up in the Eurobarometer and other opinion polls, but it is not something very well figured into academic thinking about Europe. Russia is full of these kinds of anxieties. I won't go over the point, um, but they are a very palpable part of Russian politics. Latin America's left populism is worth noting a little bit more just as a reminder that this is not all about being right wing in a certain sense. Um, that this um, sort of, of populism has long-standing issues with U.S. domination and ends up on the left partly because of those issues with the U.S. domination in various ways, as well as long left traditions. The right wing was consistently associated with the U.S. But it also is something that is shaped by a variety of different politics. It's different and distinct. Politics of indigenous peoples plays very differently on it in a different, more progressive ways and so forth. Um, but nonetheless, it includes a pervasive sense of anxiety attempt to respond to this based on oil resources, a relatively successful response in Brazil and a less successful response in Venezuela, and without going into details on it, a widespread sense that socialism, while it would be something good, is an ever-deferred future. You talk about it as good, to some extent the way you know, the second coming is good, right? um, but with very little connection to intermediate steps. And here I'll refer, since I'm running longer than I expected to be, I'll refer to a, a sort of source, a brilliant paper by Fernando Coronil, um, a Venezuelan anthropologist at the University of New York, about the relationship to the future in the Latin American populisms and socialisms and the ways in which right, those things which are ideologically left in most of these regimes are perennially deferred in favor of an actual politics um, of the everyday that is different. Right? Well, all of these have, including the Latin American left, a wide strand, a wide swath of anti-elitism, right? There is the irony that various elites get mobilized as leaders, but there's this widespread sense that elites are corrupt, elites are cheating us, elites are doing something bad, they're doing something to others, and we have to watch this. Now, in the last part of my talk, rather quickly, so I'm right on, um, why do elites miss this? Why do elites say this? Well, they say things like the world is flat. Um, that is, they embrace a certain view of the world that is flat for capital, more or less, sort of, and not so flat for labor. Um, they, and this is a liberal elite figure, Tom Sweden. This is not a conservative. Um, there is a sort of cosmopolitanism, I want to suggest in my concluding remarks, that has systematically made the populists and thereby large parts of the populations of ordinary people opaque, hard to understand, and easy to denigrate to many elites, including many academic social scientists. 
We tend to be deeply invested in global identities and aspirations, and they work for us. We like being invited to global conferences. We, generally speaking, have passports and visas that let us get in when we go to the countries where the global conferences are held, right? There is a sort of sense in which if you are an academic and you say, I'm against cosmopolitanism, right, you sound at best odd, right? You're in favor of parochialism, right? What is it, you know, this is sort of built into the notion of the progressive and knowledge that's spread in the world and this, but it's bundled with a variety of other ideas, like a knowledge society in which it would be a good thing to export all manufacturing jobs to the lowest wage country you can find that aren't necessarily a very good representation of cosmopolitanism. Cosmopolitanism in this sense that's easy to embrace for some offers a lot less to others in various ways, and this, I think, um, is in and of itself a big issue, and an issue that produces in particular a sort of bias against belonging. I think that much of cosmopolitan thinking, including that which is systematically proliferated as cosmopolitanism in political theory and sociology and other fields, is biased against belonging. Um, Martha Nussbaum, for example, says that to base your political opinions and actions on belonging to any particular ethnic, national, or other identity at a smaller scale than humanity as a whole is a morally questionable move of self-definition by a morally irrelevant characteristic. Okay? In other words, we should treat all of these solidarities at these various intermediate levels, you're a Christian, you're a Muslim, you're from the United States, you're from Botswana, as morally irrelevant to self-definitions. We should define ourselves as citizens of the world, as the idea of cosmopolitan suggests. And there's a very widespread sense of this. This has been widely and prominently argued. It's become a dominant theme in parts of political theory, um, for the political theorists, if there are any in the room. Right? Remember, there used to be liberalism and communitarianism, and every issue of political theory had a debate over liberalism and communitarianism. You tend to have a lot of debates now in which cosmopolitanism um, becomes liberalism gone global. Right? It becomes the way to reconcile liberalism with the recognition that nation states don't contain all the relevant politics, and we have these immigration issues, but um, still at odds with what got represented by communitarianism and belonging, and that tends to make the locals look backwards. They don't drink the same cocktails, right? Now, cosmopolitanism, right? the cosmopolitan cocktail, right, the favorite of the women on Sex and the City, right, I was, uh, you know, I would say the girls on Sex and City, which is what they call themselves, but I fear criticism for this, um, so I will attribute a more politically correct term. Right, this, this vodka, orange juice, cranberry juice, Greek, is a sign of here the cosmopolitanism in the last 20 years. Just this is a trivial representation of it, but not trivial. There are not one, but two bartenders, one in New York, one in San Francisco, who claim to have invented the Cosmo, um, each of whom is the subject of a full book-length biography Right, about this achievement of inventing this cocktail, um, and which you know, is enough of a part of a certain kind of popular culture. Right? But there are all sorts of evocations of cosmopolitanism in which cosmopolitanism is, blends very neatly sort of respecting human rights and being in fashion. Right? Um, eating at lots of different kinds of restaurants. You know, Indian tonight, we'll do Mexican tomorrow, and Chinese on the weekend. And we're also in favor of, of trying to abolish sweatshops. And, right, and, and sort of eliding the moral difference and significance among these things and eliding the extent to which 
um, these are things that are appreciated partly because they show how cool we are, right? How up-to-date, how progressive, um, and so forth. The, and so cosmopolitanism has come into vogue, right? And it is not coincident. I mean, I'm just evoking the sort of cosmopolitanism of the James Bond series and all of this. But, you know, the magazine, right? And, you know, what is the story of the magazine? Well, the magazine was founded, right, in the 19th century, and its circulation tracks, right, boom-bust cycles, interestingly. Um, the, it was a product of the Gilded Age. It, um, went under, suffered a serious downturn in 1893, right? Um, that, and it has repeatedly resurfaced as an account of female progress, right? During boom times for women moving to the city and enjoying certain different kinds of lifestyles, right? It comes with this sense of liberation, in some sense. It's not 100% clear to be why it should feel liberated, but it clearly is presented as the slogan, fun, fearless, and female. Right, which is still the magazine slogan, in this sense, um, that has worked for it. And that has produced, it has been part of a broad change in gender roles and attitudes, but with economic roles and with no politics absolutely eschewing any political discussion. And one of the things I'd suggest is how much this popular cosmopolitanism favors a certain kind of cultural change and sometimes ethical response, but not politics. Politics is a certain uncoolness to it. And in many ways, fashion and finance sort of combine, right? The first category for husband-seeking wives and wives-seeking husband, each in the Times of New India, is cosmopolitan, right? As in smart, westernized cosmopolitan working for a multinational corporation seeks, right? Fill in the blank. Now, it goes on, and there are categorizations by religion, and there are categorizations by caste, and there are categorizations by location, right? But Cosmo is sort of up there at the top, but it's not something everyone can, in fact, afford to be, right? It reflects a prestige hierarchy of various kinds. Um, the president of Singapore said that we have two kinds of people in Singapore. They're both valuable, heartlanders and cosmopolitans, right? But what he didn't say is what a local blogger then tries to sort of take him to task for. Well, cosmopolitans are the people who can afford to travel, who can afford to drink imported wines, who can buy Rolex watches, right? Travel is the true measure of a cosmo. Been there, done that is their motto, right? But he says, my readers here are those of us who haven't been primarily because we haven't a been. Only get upgraded to business class on about a third of my long distance airplane flights. But in those occasions, I attempted to test this out, and in the lounges that I share with other frequent travelers, and I think there is a very widespread sort of notion that the people back home have culture. The people back home are stuck in culture, and it imprisons them in various ways, and by virtue of education and jobs and travel, right, people are able to move outside of that sort of imprisonment with culture <laughs> that they experience the world as a whole. I can tell you that you know, an enormous number of times when people talk about the experiencing of the world as a whole, that they've traveled and they have been in Hiltons and Sheratons in many, many different countries, and that they have seen the world. And I'm not just making fun of individuals because I think this is an understanding that is systematically produced, right? It's not just that they're confused, it's that the act of traveling and going these places makes you think that you've been in all these places, right? Um, and it's amplified by the media and all these things so that people feel they know. They have really been to, right, fill in the blank country, and yet they've been only to the capital city, 
and two tourist sites where they stayed in luxury hotels. So the feeling of knowing it is a very limited feeling. Right? And I think this extends to lots of us, and I include myself among these people afflicted by the class consciousness of frequent travelers. All right? But hopefully, critical of it, the, this idea of escaping from cultural particularity is a big issue, and it informs the way in which people think about these populists who are in fact precisely expressing their willingness and perhaps sense of the inevitability of being bound by more or less local social ties and cultural belonging in various categories that don't work for the cosmopolitans. Right? The cosmopolitans, after all, don't really leave culture at home. It's not that they have no culture, it's that they join a new culture, right? a culture of people who are able to have discussions of what graduate school you should send your children to. Is Sciences Po really coming up in the world? Is it as good as the LSE, and is either one as good as the Kennedy School? Right? Or do Spanish Reds travel as well, uh, Spanish whites travel as well as Spanish reds. You, you know, the Chilean wines begin to measure up. How should we think of the South Africans? There's a whole culture, a whole discourse to people who read the Financial Times and The Economist, right? That's not the absence of culture. It is a class culture, an elite global class culture, which is, in fact, in significant ways multicultural, though mediated through the English language and skewed and biased in this way, but not inclusive or embracing of most of the kind of people who joined the various populist movements. Now here is a liberal democratic politician in Britain, right, Stephen Tall, who got defeated in running for parliament in this election. He's an Oxford City councillor, ran as a liberal democrat. Remember, they're the party that got the smallest votes of the major parties and thus winds up as the junior partner in the election, uh, in the coalition government and all that, who has on his website describing what he's running on the ground of. He's running on being cosmopolitan. He's running for parliament from Oxford, right? He says there are you know, two kinds of people, right? There are chauvinists, right? Reactionary, isolationist, anti-European, anti-immigration, anti-asylum. Think one point, right? These are the bad people. You sort of get that idea. And there are cosmopolitans who are outward-looking, internationalists, pro-European, pro-immigration, pro-asylum, pluralist, anti-hanging, pro-choice, believes in rehabilitation, multiculturalist, devolutionary, anti-ID cards, anti-war tolerant, progressive, forward-looking people like him. And, right? Essentially, what we're being told is that, in other words, there are old, traditional, bad people, and there are good, modern, progressive, cosmopolitan people in all of these things. He says, these, to him, are the big societal divides today, right? Well, this is, I think, a very large part of a sort of elite look at all those people on the side of the divide. You'll note that he didn't say that that was a divide framed largely by economic position and elite university education. Right? which may divide the people he calls chauvinists and cosmopolitans just as much as these seemingly elective mental attitudes do. Right? And the widespread extent to which this is something that we can only make fun of, right? but not see the tragedy, the fact that this is pretty much the only serious response to massive economic damage in the United States. And it's a terrible response. I'm not siding with it. I'm saying that we ought to have not so much an attitude of laughing at it as of anxiety that the critical political response to what have in fact been pretty big issues has been hijacked and seized by this side. But lest you think that someone like Stephen Tall, a relatively minor and unsuccessful politician, is there, here's Tony Giddens saying essentially the same thing, right? The battleground of the 21st century will pit fundamentalism against cosmopolitan tolerance. Right? We have to be cosmopolitans. Given this choice, we will tend to be cosmopolitans, I think. 
but I think it's a false choice. It's even a false idea of how tolerance spreads in the world, um, that is, one that would, for example, be completely contrary to something like the findings of Amitav Ghosh and the findings of, of um, Ashok Varshney, the various writers, people who have examined the issue of communal violence in India, right, and suggested that it is not the spread of liberal ideas about the equality of everybody, which accounts for places that have low levels versus high levels of communal violence, but a whole variety of ordinary sorts of connections and expectations that people belong there. I don't like these Muslims, but you know, we always had Muslims here. Muslims belong, they fit, right? Is very different from expecting everybody to have a universalist nationalist position in a certain way and maybe more productive of tolerance, right? Well, religion is emblematic. I want to sort of close with this sort of issue and tie it back to the 19th century and be just a tad more specific in this, right? One of the issues here, the Tea Party is not a Christian movement. It certainly has correlations with a variety of people who want to say things like America is or should be a Christian nation and so forth. But religion is emblematic um, because of the extent to which it fits into the cosmopolitan worldview as one of those bad old traditional cultures that you might be caught in and not as something that anybody sensible might believe in, regardless of whether it's Christianity um, in any of its forms or Islam or others. And we have only to think about the extent to which social science managed to mostly ignore it through this cosmopolitan era until 2001 when this began, oh, oh, it, it matters, right? It's back on the era, right? Now, so what does this have to do with the public sphere? And how do I sort of take this back um, in a way? Well, the first thing um, is let me uh, suggest there's something problematic with the very idea of the public sphere as articulated by Habermas um, and even to some extent by Hannah Arendt in my early formulations. So it's articulated in the Habermas account, and I'll just dwell on that, which is enormously influential and I think in many ways a very powerful um, account for social science, one of his best works, right, with certain oddities. The first of which is religion's missing. And it's not just missing like, oh, he happened not to mention it, but you could have made a pretty good argument if you were going to say that the spread of pamphlets and, and publications marked the beginning of a European public sphere, that the Reformation might count as a large part of that beginning, that 17th century England, right, not 18th century England, was where you should have started the account of the public sphere. And if you started it, you would start it, among other things, with the notion that the internal politics of the public sphere was conflictual and full of clashes between people who really didn't believe the same, who didn't have a sort of near consensus around liberal values, right, as his 18th century golden age figures do, differing only on various specifics of policy and so forth, but that there were enormous conflicts. Well, second, you might say that Habermas underestimates the conflict in the 18th century. These, you know, things like the American Revolution produced rather big debates in the British public sphere, right? But third, and I think very important, um, the account misses the extent to which the public sphere is formed on the basis of exclusion, even though it idealizes and is dedicated to a rhetoric of openness. And I'll be very brief about this, but what I would suggest is that the public sphere, um, and I should say Habermas has been criticized before for leaving out workers, right, and the extent to which the proletarian public sphere gets ignored in this account of the bourgeois public sphere. So, work of, of Necht and Kluger, later Jeff Ely and a variety of others take this up. 
And I think that's a sound criticism, but let me make it slightly different. It's not like there was a bourgeois public sphere and there were proletarians and Habermas just happened to not pay enough attention to the proletarians and we should add them in. It is more the case that in much of the 18th century, many of the people who would look like proletarians by the 19th century don't. Right? They look like craftspeople. They look like um, local journalists. They are people who are, you know, the, the apprentice staymaker who becomes Thomas Paine. They are a variety of figures who are in the same public sphere. So they don't, you know, agree with each other, but T Burke and Paine are in the same public sphere. They're engaging each other. Now, by the post-Napoleonic Wars period, that's impossible. Right? No elite figure like Burke is taking seriously any of the radical Democrats who claim Paine's heritage in the early 19th century. Now, what's happened, and I don't want to, I can't go off, I do want to, into a long discussion of um, the early 19th century case, but what happens is actually that the public sphere was more inclusive. It became the bourgeois public sphere by the spread of a set of ideas and practices that excluded the people who didn't fit into the bourgeois model, disproportionately artisans, crafts workers, a variety of radical journalists, a number of figures um, from non-metropolitan England, but also key London radicals and so forth, who would have figured as problematic, but inside it in an earlier period. Right? They're pushed out, and they become some of the beginnings of a radical movement, the kind of people who are in E.P. Thompson's making of the English working class. Um, and in their being pushed out, there is a spread of an ideology of reason. The public sphere is only for those people who can participate in proper reason. And these people who hold protest rallies and marches and who communicate through symbols and who have demagogues like Henry Hunt and William Cobbett running around ranting and raving and mixing things together aren't to be taken seriously politically. Right? And there, there is an option of not giving them the franchise, which elites don't have later in the same way. Right? And in that particular case, religion is on the side of the state, for the most part, organized religion that is being defended by the state, or a complicated picture of the populace. But think then further about the extent to which that begins to seem something that has to be excluded. Think of Habermas's recent struggles to try to deal with religion, where Habermas actually has been quite courageous in taking up the issue of religion in the public sphere to the shock of many of the Habermaniacs who are, um, you know, thinking, what is he doing? Jürgen is talking to the Pope, right? Why is he talking to the Pope? The Pope's on the other side. You don't talk to the Pope, right? And there's a sort of lot of anxiety about the turn of Habermas to religion, right? But Habermas's turn to religion still is limited by arguments like, but any religious utterances that are made on the floor of Parliament would have to be expunged from their official record. You know, so, Right? Yeah, we're tolerant, and we will allow it in to a certain distance, but there will be this very asymmetric treatment of people who speak in religion. And this is Habermas really going very, very far down the line towards engaging religious people, and there are many others who won't go that far, um, and religion's left out. So let me close by just tying this back to the American populace, the early 19th and 20th centuries, who we don't always recall overlapped the social gospel movement rather considerably. Right? The social gospel movement addressed issues. This was a time when populism was more on the left, though again ambiguous in its categorization, certainly claimed by the left later. Right? Social gospel movement addressed issues like equality and slums and crime and the need for better schools. It stretched into pacifist opposition to World War I. It informed the development of settlement houses, the ministry to the immigrants and the poor, and even early social science though for some social science was a secular channeling of initially religious impulses. 
Walter Rauschenbosch, one of the leading preachers of the social gospel, argued, whoever uncouples the religious and the social life has not understood Jesus. Whoever sets any bounds for the reconstructive power of the religious life over the social relations and institutions of men, to that extent, denies the faith of the master. Right? This is an identifiable gospel message that could be in a, you know, put in a very different context today. This is a more or less left critical message in this period. Religions entangled in complicated ways with politics, trade unionism, and social activism during the early decades of the 20th century, and not consistently on one side or the other. Christianity figured prominently in the populism of William Jennings Bryan and his followers. If Bryan's attacks on Darwin's evolutionary theory presaged one enduring theme in American evangelical, one enduring theme engaging American evangelicals in the public sphere, right? We are still to this day, this is one of our um, hot point issues, right? His populist attacks on bankers and others in the Northeastern moneyed classes, the ancestors of the investment bankers, presaged another and should remind us that religion is not inherently of the left or the right. When Bryant thundered, you shall not crucify mankind on a cross of gold, his target was a deflationary currency reform that threatened indebted farmers and other borrowers. But the power of the speech came significantly from its biblical illusions. Like many populists, Bryant was a complicated figure, pressing issues from economic nationalism to prohibition, but always in solidarity with common people who benefited less than elites from the Gilded Age boom and suffered more after it went bust. Writing in 1922, John Dewey grasped that to many in the educated elite, the cosmopolitans of the day, Bryan seemed at best backwards and his followers more so. Dewey noted that part of the issue was the place of religion in the public sphere. Bryan speaks, he said, <coughs> and I quote, for the church-going classes, those who have come under the influence of evangelical Christianity. Referring to classes, Dewey did not mean that religious people were poor or uneducated. Evangelicals were largely middle class then as now, and included many self-made men among the upper classes, think Rockefeller. But disdain for such religious convictions was disproportionately strong among his highly educated readers and listeners. Yet, Dewey suggested, sophisticated elites ignored the populists at their peril. That's a quote. These people form the backbone of philanthropic social interest of social reform through political action of pacifism of popular education. Now, to be clear, Dewey was what today is called a secular humanist. He was not endorsing Christianity or any other religion, but he was criticizing elite condescension and offering an understanding of the importance of populism that I think we could do well to take seriously today. Thank you. Let's see if we have questions, and I think we're going to have to, we, since we have this filming going on, um, you're going to have to repeat the question. Okay. Yeah. But let's Keep my microphone open off. it up. <laughs> well, let me ask one question. How, how do you reconcile, how can we, what's the program to reconcile these two poems? Is there a, <laughs> is there a path to, to, towards something that will, um, 
to, to reconcile or to, to, to forge a middle way between these two extremes that you painted today? Well, as we get caught up in very heated politicization of this, it's very hard to imagine the middle path that you ask about, John. But I think we won't always be in the same fever pitch of this. And we have various opportunities, including academic opportunities, to take seriously the sorts of positions and arguments that, that are being expressed. So as academics, I think the Dewey hint is a good hint. Listen, study, look at this, ask reflexively what it is we're missing and what it is we're not paying enough attention to among others, but also in ourselves and our own orientations. More politically and more in terms of, of the politics of the world, I think that thinking about the public sphere in terms of uh, the way in which people who already share many commonalities carry on a rational critical discussion gets in the way of a reconciliation, note the religious word, um, that perhaps would be more um, advanced by thinking of the public sphere as itself a source of solidarity. That is, the actual entering into discussions, even arguments, the participation in common is something that needs to be built. So the building of the public, and I won't go on at great length about it, but it seems to me that we've suffered in the last 35 years especially a tremendous evisceration of the idea of the public. I said earlier today in another seminar, something that has come from the right and the left because it's been linked to um, a denigration of the state, which has been presented as only illegitimate authority by both a sort of romantic anti-authoritarian left and the followers of Friedman and Hayek and so forth. And, and um, the public realm has been eviscerated. It's been eviscerated. It seems like a bad job in many ways. Well, you know, people who could get really good jobs would make money on Wall Street as a stultified job. It seems um, like a topic for discourse that is hard for people almost to say. We get what it would be to be fair among private interests. And just to make a quick example out of that, think of affirmative action debates in universities, which became when each time the Supreme Court took it up, but so more recently, a couple of years ago, debates about the fair distribution of essentially individual private goods. So a university education will help you get a better job and earn more in your life, and are we distributing that opportunity fairly among a population? But almost silent and unheard in that debate was any discussion of why we have public universities in the country. And Ohio State and other public universities were funded to advance a public, or created to advance a variety of public purposes, not limited to a fair distribution of individual economic benefits. And so trying to reclaim and find, again, a language of that sort that would begin to talk about these kind of public purposes and public institutions, I think can be something that people can engage in, when not in the heat of politicized passion, from very different positions. People who don't necessarily agree about what all the public programs should be, but could engage around what is offered, say, by public universities. Yes?
good question. The question, if I can sort of paraphrase this, does it make much sense to try to understand in any particular positive movement, populist movement, what its positive causes are, what it's for, as distinct from, as I suggested, the things that it's against or rejecting in some way. Um, and to add to the challenge of the question, I say you might think that not looking for what the movement is positively for is one more example of sort of denigrating it and not taking it seriously. Um, that you might sort of say, well, we should look at the 19th century populists, what they're for. And I think there's an element of truth, but there's also something still, I'm going to stick to my position, um, always still something wrong. So the, my position was that these movements are reactive for the most part and defined largely by resistance. That doesn't mean that there aren't values that could make coherent some of that resistance. So when small farmers are um, part of the populist movement, or for that matter, I mean, the populist movement has as part of its pathos that the small farmers and urban workers and all can't get together on the same page in this, they each have various things that could become part of a coherent political economic analysis of economic politics. That um, is, I think, not what for the most part happens. So the task of trying to reconstruct what would have been that coherent movement, right? what would have been a coherent ideology that would have made sense of the economic situation is what economists often do um, in this. Um, and there were people who were followers of Henry George, and they're more you know, coherent than some others. So I think we academics often, in, the, in relation to movements, do a certain work of reconstruction. People are angry about something, and they're trying to defend something they value, and we work out the, relation, the values and the offenses or challenges and work on rational integration of that, trying to present it coherently. But that isn't necessarily the task of either the somewhat demagogic leaders like Brian or the task of ordinary people in most of their lives. Ordinary people, most of us in our ordinary lives, including academics, tolerate way more inconsistency um, than we do when we're doing our professional work as academics where trying to create consistent coherent accounts is the task. So to sum up, my assertion in this is that there will be likely some people in these movements who are much more theoretically astute and coherent than others. The wide popular followings will be motivated by a variety of different issues. And when people like academics, but also later social movement organizers, try to make this coherent and work out the underpinnings, it will turn out that some of those causes are contradictory. So there are people out in the Tea Party who are really defending private property and people who are really pissed off about the way private property has been organized in relation to parts of the financial crisis. There are people who say things like, keep your government hands off my Medicare. Right? So there are people at their own analysis who may be contradictory. But there are also different groups within the Tea Party who would not be united in a group which was fully consistent in its ideology. And the power of the movement is that because it's reactive, it can pull them together in the same movement without motivating them to try to sort out all of their possible differences of opinion, and the coalition can stay intact. Should do. Would be, and the usual decision in a sort of nominal sense is pointed out here it is, here it is, here it is, here it is. Um, 
<laughs> okay. So I'm supposed to repeat the question, which is going to be hard in this case, but let me try. With special reference to Hindu nationalism, um, how might we think about um, issues of movements that claim religious identity and act in extremely exclusionary um, or conf conflictual ways? Um, and what am I suggesting the a liberal, a cosmopolitan, or a person adhering to the kind of position that I've left vaguely in the background would have to say in response to something like Hindu nationalism. No, that's no. not really so that tries to close it off in the case of India. Yeah. The, um, uh, in response to John's question, I think I said that. So there are several levels of response. This will not be entirely well organized. But first, um, there is this particular pathos to the question that India might have been, and in other circumstances, could be the source of so many great examples, like your village example, of multiple overlapping, connecting sorts of visions instead of universalistic, dogmatic, excluding um, authoritarian visions of religion. Um, and so the Hindu nationalist movements um, from Savarkar to the BJP are producing something else. They're producing something very much in the vein. They really are nationalist and are making religion serve the content of something that in many ways owes at least as much to the idea of nation in this, it seems to me. Um, and there's a whole story that you're way more complicated than I am to begin to pull out about them. But what I would suggest is, first, that what I was trying to do mainly was to get religion on the agenda. Because my first complaint, which would not be a complaint that would ever come up in India in the same way, is that it's not. That people just don't pay attention to it. That in some sense, it's systematically occluded by the cosmopolitan vision of lots of academics. So that it looks, even when they know that, well, there are those people going to church, that it's not as important as it is not only in general collectively, but in their lives, because it's not an activity that it makes sense to be so important in their lives in certain ways. So I, th I wanted to sort of get, let's study it. Now, if I'm going to push that further, besides just the generic, let's get it on the agenda, how does it get on the agenda? Well, both the movement organization and the content of different kinds of religious mobilizations and religious practices and engagements would matter a lot. That's the first part. So you could, I would have to get it, once getting it on the agenda, you would have to stop talking about it just as religion and start talking about it in more concrete and differentiated terms. Um, and you would then sort of say, well, what's up with Pentecostalists? What's up with you know, Islamists? And what's up with 
Catholicism and what's up in Hindu, in various different contexts. In each of these, you would find a plurality of things up. So not only would religion get deconstructed into all these different things, but each religion would have um, that too. And that would, I think, already be helpful because it would begin to make clear that rather than being the antithesis of dialogue in the public sphere, religion can be part of it and a source of rhetoric for it, sometimes in with terrible ways. So, you know, um, uh, Joshi and Advani are not my examples for people who are bringing Hindu rhetoric into the public sphere well, but um, the, the problem, and here I think Habermas is on the right track, what he calls the semantic content that religion can bring, the extent to which, for example, the Exodus narrative has informed a variety of struggles. Michael Walzer book pointed this out um, in not just the US, but a variety of settings in the Christian world over time, so that even for people who are not in a doctrinaire sense accepting any particular religious position, the religious narrative, the religious language may become informing. I remarked on using the word reconciliation when I was responding to John's question. And it's just one of many, many sort of words and ideas that come in to our vocabulary from religion and that, that matter for us. And that's not just a dead inheritance, that it's renewed through religion as well. So what I would want to suggest is that we would, would try to um, engage in direct ways different religious expressions and see this as something that can be nurtured in the public sphere and that being a part of discourse in the public spirit might actually be one of the best ways to deal with the problem that we were, are going to not like some of them, right? Um, rather than trying to exclude all of them um, in order to respond to not liking some of them. Um, make a sort of quick further comment on that, which is I think that much of the discourse of cosmopolitanism and liberalism in general in our era has been organized, like nationalism, as a discourse about categories of ostensibly equivalent people. Right? All those people in the nation have the same rights. Humanity, human rights. We have, so we have a thinking in terms of a sort of set logic in mathematical terms of people who are equivalent lots of the time. And it is true that some of this kind of thinking pervades BJP sorts of thinking in India as well. Um, but I also think that we need to break out of that. That's useful for certain sorts of conceptions of social justice and considering equality, but it's not useful in other ways because it doesn't open up the idea of connections. And if we could begin to think much, not just about categorical equivalence, but about the historically forged connections among people and groups, which are always incomplete, can always be partially remade, allow for overlaps right? Not just sets of, oh, these are Christians, these are Hindus, these are Muslims, but a whole variety of multiple and overlapping identities and categories and so forth. I think we have something closer to what can be a, a positive engagement of different and contending positions in the public sphere and a more socially robust way of imagining a cosmopolitan world. That is a world in which there would be nation states and local communities and different religions, but without the projects of making them absolutely exclusive, trump cards against each other. And that is, I think, what we should be hoping for. We should be hoping for something more like that multiple and overlapping um, structure. I'm trying to avoid saying overlapping consensuses in the John Rawls sense, but I mean something vaguely like that. 
um, unless the logic of, um, of the perfect orderliness of the, the set theoretical categorical logic. And I think that's particularly important in relation to religion because one of the things we would see if we paid more attention to religion within this world is religions been, several religions have been extremely cosmopolitan in various ways. They've been very embracing of difference. Hinduism at certain points and in certain parts of the Hindu project, not others, right? Not the Hindu nationalist project, right? But earlier phases. Islam in some settings in earlier phases enormously cosmopolitan and inclusive, um, you know, the Andalusian period or something like that, the, um, far from the attacks on the Cordoba Mosque for being all about conquest. The um, Christianity, I mean, these are, these are actually existing cosmopolitanisms, but they don't work by, for the most part, a sort of set logic identity among everyone. They work by connections and among different countries, among different peoples of the world, different ways. Sometimes more benign, sometimes more problematic. But, um, but we would see that this is already an available transnational set of ties and connections, and that it extends to religious engagements in the peace movement or in humanitarian action or in other sorts of arenas. And, and then we would want to say, well, how do we build on that? Rather than the, how do we imagine the perfect, separate, totally secular thing? And we would ask of secularism, what is it, right? Secularism is a something. It's not simply the absence of religion. It's a particular set of views. What views are those? And how do they connect? And how do different kinds of ideas of secularism connect? So the French laïcité notion provides much less of a public sphere as a zone of connections among people who think differently, say on religious lines, than a notion of a strong anti-clerical sort of exclusion. Secularism as it developed in India is much more about um, rights to equal kinds of government treatment, including potentially subsidies, right? So in India, different religious groups at odds with each other can claim equal entitlement to subsidized fair treatment from the government, which creates a very different context for religion in the public sphere than something like the French or Turkish notion of laïcité. And that's the sort of thing I'd want us to examine. Um, great question, how to think about localism, is it a luxury of the privileged, is it a potential source of new kinds of cosmopolitan action and connections, and how does it work differently for elites and non-elites? Um, there's lots of non-elite localism. So the first thing I start with is many people, um, one of the problems with the kinds of cosmopolitan I was criticizing is that it ignores how many people aren't traveling all around the world and, and their life chances are intimately caught up with their position in particular localities, both territorial localities, but also, you know, subcasts or um, religions or other kinds of localizing partial sorts of things. The, um, and I, therefore I think lots of not very privileged people are very local um, and that they may, 
embrace various kinds of local, communal, or other identities, partly because they do very important work for them. Identities aren't just sort of abstract decisions, like, you know, should I think about myself this way or not? They're embedded in very sort of practical relationships of dependence and support and who you can count on when you're sick or you're old and, right, all these sorts of things. Um, and that we should be taking those much more seriously. We should not be imagining the global in ways that totally ignores that. So my, my main appeal is to take more seriously the localism that isn't all elite. About the various sorts of um, fractions of the cosmopolitan elite class that embrace certain kinds of localisms, I think there are potentials. I th I'd be cautious to exaggerate them. I'm in a, involved in a project with a team that, that Manuel Castells is leading at the moment, and, and Manuel is very strongly sort of embracing the transformative potential of a new economic culture grounded in alternative, mainly urban local practices. So locavores and cooperatives and barter systems and alternative currencies and urban agriculture, and right, you get the idea, right? There's a whole sort of world of this. Um, and my view on this is, it is indeed way bigger than we usually suggest, including when the we as sociologists who study things like this, we underestimate it. Right? We underestimate the number of people who are trying to live largely outside cash economies and trying to deal local, very um, strongly localist ways. But I think we should be cautious about overestimating the extent to which this offers a transformative global alternative. Um, there may be parts of the small is more beautiful sort of thinking in any non-growth oriented global future, but in and of itself, it seems to me, it's not likely to produce all of that future. And, um, <coughs> and some of these localist groups are oriented to a public sphere and some aren't, because lots of localism is about creating an alternative private sphere an enclosure away from mutual public engagement, while others are very much about creating realms for public engagement with others. Um, so Castell's people he's looking at in Barcelona are pretty much public-oriented. They're really about creating public spaces and having these new barter systems and all these things that will bring people together in convivial public spaces, though they're very non-political. And that's a limit to why I think this won't be so transformative of the world. I think without political transformations, we'll be limited. But Thank you. Good questions. <laughs>